right, we are continuing our study on Christ in the Old Testament. And what we've identified is that uh, he is both the main theme and the goal of all of the Old Testament scriptures. He's present in all of the Old Testament in some, uh, what should be for, for us now, clear and obvious ways. And uh, he's also present in some less obvious ways, which we will be covering as we go forward in our study. We've identified, though, that we're going to be tackling our subject in three categories of study. Uh, one is we're looking at Bible prophecies. We're doing that first. Uh, then we're ahead of us, we're, look, we're going to be looking at uh, actual appearances of Christ, pre-incarnation appearances of the Lord in what <clears throat> theologians call Christophanies. And then finally, we'll save uh, the final portion for types and shadows, which are um, the more interesting and challenging portion of our study, uh, the less obvious ways in which Christ is most definitely present in the Old Testament. Uh, What we've done so far with our study in Bible prophecies is we've looked at the nature of Christ. We spent a couple of weeks doing that, um, how his nature was described prophetically Uh, before he ever entered into this world. And then in our last study, we looked at his character, probably the most overlooked or or uh, under-focused on theme of Bible prophecy by most who study prophecy. Uh, The signals, the prophetic signals for the sake of the people of the Lord to be able to recognize him when he came, what would the Messiah be like, not just who he actually was in his true identity. And what we're going to be doing tonight is looking at, as I mentioned last time, first coming prophecies. These are prophecies that are focused on the the Lord's arrival into this world. And you understand the distinction. We've studied this concept before about how there are in Scripture multiple comings of the Lord, many comings of the Lord, but not many in the sense of his actual personal incarnate presence. So the Christophanies that we will be studying were actual comings in history, but he never incarnated in his Christophanies. So these are all focused on when Jesus actually entered the world as a human being. And we're going to try to tackle tonight prophecies connected to the birth event, his actual, the moment of his actual entry into the world, and then we'll look at ministry prophecies, a number of prophecies that describe what his public ministry would be like, what would happen during his public ministry, and the conclusions that the people of God should draw from his ministry, and all of that being described in advance. Now, we're going to do this study a little bit different tonight than the ones we've done so far in Christ's nature and Christ's character and prophecy. Uh, The reason being that our study tonight is going to be more focused on circumstances and the description of those circumstances. There'll there'll be a little bit less need for in-depth description. Uh, And there are many more passages that actually uh, need to be identified that are tied to both his birth and his ministry than there were for his nature and his character. So for those segments of study that we've done so far, we were able to slow down, take our time. We dug into some prophecies that were uh, 
challenging to rightly understand and required a little bit more explanation. So tonight what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be really tackling a list of prophecies. I hope I'll get through it. I can't guarantee I will, but I'm going to be tackling more than I ever normally would. Um, I have a, this is like a behind the scenes info, uh, has nothing directly to do with our study tonight, but indirectly it's connected. I have kind of a general guideline that I follow when I'm preparing studies for the church. And the guideline is I, I don't really like to um, tackle more than at maximum eight passages of scripture. Sometimes, depending on the study, I, may, I might try to uh, address as many as 10, but the sweet spot is somewhere between four and eight. And what I've learned over the years is if I try to go to more passages than that, uh, I just run out of time because of the explanation that's connected to each passage. So tonight, what I'm going to try to do is look at 20 uh, prophecies. And, you know, of course, if I camp and explain each one, uh, even if, I mean, I've already chewed up five minutes just in the introduction, but if I took a full hour and we did 20 prophecies, I'd, I'd be, you know, I'd be at a three-minute-per-prophecy kind of uh, pace. The problem is, and it's a good problem, but it's still a problem in terms of the teaching responsibility I have, these are 20 Old Testament passages. Each one of those 20 Old Testament prophecies has a corresponding New Testament passage which describes for us, for our benefit, the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy as it actually was understood as a fulfillment by the apostles who wrote the New Testament books and letters. So really, what I would like to do tonight is cover 40 passages of Scripture. And so that's, a, that's, that's five times more than my, my usual maximum number. So um, you, I'm, I'm setting this all up just so that you can understand I'll be moving at a fairly quick pace tonight compared to my usual pace. And uh, next time, maybe we can slow down a little bit, although the next time we'll be looking at passages, prophecies that, that speak directly to the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, of course, there's lots and lots of those as well. So uh, without me burning up more time, let's just dig right in. So we're going to look at birth prophecies first. The first two I'm just going to briefly describe to you. And for each one of these, even if I don't give explanation, I'll give you an Old Testament address, and then I'll give you a New Testament address that's connected to it. For those who like to take notes, be sure to get the passages down in your notes. Uh, and you can, of course, take your time to look these up on your own. The first two I'm just going to mention because we've already covered them. We covered these first two as part of our study of the nature of Christ, and the first one, of course, is probably the most famous birth passage in all of the Old Testament, which was the Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 passage. I'm not going to turn there. Um, it, for those who want to join me in where I am going to start, I'll be eventually here in a minute in uh, Hosea chapter 11. But Isaiah 7, 14 is the virgin birth prophecy that uh, Isaiah gave. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew recognizes that Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in the birth circumstances of the Lord Jesus. You're well familiar with the story. I don't have to fill in all the details, but uh, his mother Mary, before she knew Joseph in a sexual way, she was found to be with child. 
uh, through the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. And that's described for us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And this gives me an opportunity to say, by the way, that when, I, when I'm giving you links to New Testament fulfillment tonight, understand that the one link that I'll give you is not necessarily the only New Testament link that identifies this is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. For instance, there's one in the Gospel of Luke as well. And for many of the others on our list tonight, there are multiple New Testament connections. But just for the sake of time, I'm going to just link one and one Old Testament uh, prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. So the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And of course, it was fulfilled exactly as Isaiah had said it would be. The second passage we also studied, it's found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and it is fulfilled and specified as a fulfillment in Matthew's gospel chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and that's having to do with the circumstances of his birth in that he would be born in the small village town just south of the city of Jerusalem that we know as Bethlehem. The reason, of course, for the great significance of his birth in Bethlehem is that that was the ancestral home of the line of King David of Israel. And one of the critical components, we've already studied this in the, uh, the, the list of prophecies that had to do with the nature of Christ, but one of the essential components of Messianic prophecy is that the Messiah would be known as the son of David. He would descend from David's royal line and ultimately he would become a king like King David only in an even greater and fuller sense. And of course, that's because his kingdom would be an eternal, always growing, never ending kingdom. But Micah chapter uh, chapter five, verse two specifies he would be born in Bethlehem. Now our third birth prophecy we find in the prophecy of Hosea. Chapter 11, this is one of the easily overlooked ones, but it's an interesting detail that the Lord chose to add in the prophetic details of the birth of the Messiah. Um, It's, I think, one of the more important ones because, again, we're looking at all of these prophecies from a couple of different standpoints. One, as a believer, it's always just good and healthy for us to to be reassured and encouraged and strengthened by how much detail the Lord gave us about the entrance of his son into the world hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually happened. And for my heart, it should for your heart as well, give the assurance of just how completely God the Father is in control of all of history as we know it. But there's also another benefit of of our study of Bible prophecy, and that is as we're representing the Lord, to an unbelieving world. As we're trying to help unbelievers whose minds are darkened, whose eyes are blinded to spiritual truth, help them to see the truth of who Jesus actually is and all that he actually accomplished. One of the more helpful door openers in our current generation is the, um, the certainty of Bible prophecy. There's no other human being in all of human history that had even a handful of hundreds of years before they entered the stage of human history, descriptions of 
of what they would be like, who they actually would be, what would be the circumstances of their birth, what would be the circumstances of their life, what would be the unique and special circumstances of their death, let alone what would be the circumstances of their resurrection, their ascension back to heaven, and ultimately their second coming, all of which is still ahead of us in our prophecy study. And so when there's details like this one in Hosea, it really stands out because what we've got so far about him is he's going to enter the world in the town of Bethlehem. But now this detail is added in Hosea 11, verse 1. The Lord prophesied through Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, we of course understand this prophecy as speaking in two directions at the same time, and they're both valid and they're both true. True in a different context and valid in a different context. One is Hosea is speaking to the wayward people of Israel by the Spirit of God. He's under the direct influence of the Spirit of God. He's speaking to a wayward nation, a nation that has already drifted away from the Lord. You know the the predominant theme of Hosea's prophecy is one of Israel is being compared to an unfaithful bride who has left her covenant husband who happens to be the Lord. She's compared to a prostitute in this book. And so part of this prophecy, and we're, we're at the tail end of Hosea's prophecy here, is he's reminding Israel of what the Lord has done in their past. And I, I had described to you when we first started our study of prophecy, that prophecy can speak in three different time contexts. And we have to discern in what context they're meant to be understood. Prophecy does oftentimes, as many of these prophecies of Christ do, of course, uh, it speaks to the future, events that are yet to happen at the time they were originally revealed and spoken and written down. But they also, at times, prophecy speaks to the present moment of history, and prophecy can even point backward in history, reinterpreting events that have already taken place for the people of God to see history through the Lord's perspective or through the Lord's eyes. And so this prophecy in Hosea 11.1 1 certainly does that. It's speaking about at surface level, and, and there's nothing wrong with reading it and understanding it at surface level first. At surface level, it's speaking about the Lord's relationship to Israel, and it's pointing to the past, and what past event is it speaking to? The event that we call rightly so, the Exodus, where the Lord sent Moses and called the, the people of Israel out of Egypt and he, he embraced them as his own children. When it says, when Israel was a child, meaning early in Israel's history as a nation, really at the very beginning of their history as a nation. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And the Lord certainly did call Israel out of Egypt through the ministry of Moses. But it's also speaking about future events that have not yet happened. And it's also speaking about the ministry of the Messiah, the, the life experience of the Messiah. And we see that. Turn over real quick to Matthew chapter 2. As I said, this is one of the more overlooked passages, but one of the most interesting ones to me. Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. 
I'll start reading in verse 13. And this is, we're picking up the story. Jesus has been born. We don't know exactly how long he's been alive when we pick up the story in verse 13, but he could have been alive as long as two years by this point, according to some of the details earlier in the text. And the, the wise men have just visited him. Verse 13, now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, that's Joseph now, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then here we have Matthew's commentary on these events. He's, he's inserting what he has now by the Spirit of God come to understand in terms of assigning significance to this development of, of what we call in tradition the Holy Family, leaving the circumstances of Bethlehem and journeying southward to Egypt. Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he doesn't name Hosea here, but he quotes Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. But it's another thing to say the Messiah will be both born in Bethlehem and in some unknown future way, he will also come out of Egypt. And so in this circumstance, the Old Testament rabbis, the teachers of God's word, didn't understand that this was actually a messianic text. They saw it as exclusively referring only to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, called out of Egypt during the time of Moses. But by the Spirit of God, Matthew sees that this actually has a reference to and an application to the story of Jesus. All right, let's look at another one. Jeremiah chapter 31. And Hosea's prophecy hints at this, but the Jeremiah passage we're about to read in Jeremiah 31 specifies it. And that is there is a circumstance that's going to happen as the Holy Family flees Bethlehem. And why are they fleeing Bethlehem? because of the the evil intentions of King Herod. And they're going to stay in Egypt until King Herod dies and things are safe to return to Israel. And here Jeremiah tells us what's going to happen while they're in Egypt. Verse 15 of, of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, and bitter weeping. Rachel, now Rachel, of course, was the wife of one of the great patriarchs of, of the covenant. And Rachel, at this time that Jeremiah is giving his prophecy, Rachel is not personally alive, but she symbolically represents the mothers of the covenant people of Israel. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted, comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, Jeremiah doesn't tell us the specific and exact circumstances that have caused the mothers of Israel to weep in deep lamentation and mourning, but
but obviously something dramatic has happened. Then let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. And again, I apologize one last time for how quickly we're going to be moving back and forth in Scripture, but there's no other way to get it done. Matthew 2. There was a teacher when I was young in the Lord who um, I had some exposure to, sat under his uh, teaching ministry for a period of time, and uh, he did this every Bible study. And um, I mean, I'm talking about tackling too many passages of scripture uh, for any one study. And he, uh, he had a, a favorite way of describing his teaching method, and he called it doing biblical wind sprints. Um, I don't know if you were ever in athletics, but uh, like in the football world, when they do wind sprints, it's, it's where they're just running too fast for too long, and everybody gets out of breath at the end of the process. All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 2. Connecting it to Jeremiah 31, we're looking at verses 16 through 18. And we left off right at, at verse 15 when, when the Holy Family has, um, they've escaped to Egypt. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, uh, brief description, they didn't actually trick him. They just didn't give him the truth that he thought he deserved. Um, They didn't tell him all the circumstances about uh, the child that they were going to visit after their visit. They just went back home, and Herod had been expecting them to come back and fill him in on all the details, so he viewed it as a trick. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. This is where we get the idea that Jesus could have been as old as two years by this moment in time, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Verse 17 makes the connection for us to Jeremiah's prophecy. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet of Je- prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so Um, Matthew, by the Spirit of God, understands, interprets, and applies Jeremiah's, uh, the mothers of Israel weeping for their lost children to the event of the slaughter of the two-year-old children and under in Bethlehem through the wicked efforts of King Herod to wipe out, before he could grow up, a future king of Israel who he thought would be competition for his royal position. All right, one more uh, birth prophecy, and this is the most challenging one. So we're not going to start in the Old Testament. We'll start in the New Testament, still in Matthew 20, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2, but we'll look now at verse 23. So um, the, the family, Herod has died. At this point, the family has returned from Egypt by the Lord's direction. And a brief description of what happens when they return is in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, the reason I'm saying this is a particularly challenging prophecy, and I have no 
argument that it is a prophecy, why can I be confident that it is a prophecy? Because Matthew's just told me, and my only, my only evaluation is, do I believe Matthew was writing the Gospel of Matthew while under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And as far as I'm concerned, you know, we spent 11 years studying Matthew together, and I've been studying it for a lot longer than that myself. That question was resolved in my heart years ago, and the deeper I go in my studies of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the more convinced I am, rather than less convinced. But Matthew says there were, the, the prophets spoke along these lines, that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, and Matthew's going one additional step and basically saying Jesus is the Messiah, and so Jesus would be called a Nazarene, and they're settling in the city of Nazareth to, to enable the Messiah to grow up there, and of course he didn't grow up in Bethlehem, and he didn't grow up in Egypt, he grew up in Nazareth. Uh, that's the point at which his public ministry actually began some 28 to 30 years later. Um, all of that is connected to his return to the city or the town of Nazareth. And Matthew connects it and says, the prophet spoke to that. What's the problem, though? The problem is if you take out your concordance and you put in one of the key words here, like Nazarene, uh, the, he would be called a Nazarene, and you look for it in the Old Testament. There is no single passage anywhere in the, in the Old Testament that specifically states he will be called a Nazarene. Now, in most of the prophetic uh, references that Matthew makes, uh, you've got, if you've got your Bible open, we just looked at a couple of three of them. Look up just a few verses in verse 18. You'll notice that he specifically names the prophet Jeremiah and then quotes a direct quote of the prophecy of Jeremiah in verse 18. Then look up a little further in, um, in uh, chapter 2 of Matthew. Look at verse, um, at verse 6. While he doesn't name this prophet, um, he, and, and the prophet is, of course, Micah, as I've already identified, he does um, quote Micah's prophecy uh, in verse 6 and all of that has to do with his birth in Bethlehem and what we're, what we're to uh, understand about his ministry as it's described there. In verse 23, in this prophetic reference, he, uh, Matthew connects this prophecy not to any single prophet, but he connects it to a group which he calls the prophets, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called Nazarene. So I've studied this in the best commentaries. Um, there are different opinions as to what Matthew is doing here by identifying as a prophecy that the Messiah, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene without a specific quote. And I'm, instead of taking you into all of the different opinions and all of the different possibilities of what it could mean, I'm just going to give you my conclusion based upon the best treatments that I've seen about this, the one that makes the most spiritual sense to me. So turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John for a fulfillment connection. John chapter 1. And this will be the only one in our list tonight that has this kind of challenge connected to it. 
invert in terms of seeing it in the Old Testament and seeing the, the New Testament fulfillment. John chapter 1, and we're going to read, starting in verse 43, an exchange between Jesus and two of his disciples, those disciples being Philip and Nathaniel. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now at this point, Nathanael is not a believer. Nathanael is going to be one of the twelve apostles. But at this point, he's not a believer. This is the first time he's heard the news of the actual arrival of the Messiah and, and its, his identification with the name Jesus of Nazareth that's been just proclaimed to him by Philip, who's just recently become a believer. And Nathaniel has a very interesting response to Philip's bold proclamation that we've found the one that the Old Testament scriptures have, have prophesied and pointed to. We've found the Messiah. And his name is Jesus And he comes from Nazareth. And Nathanael says in response to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, it's an interesting response. I mean, if someone walked up to you and said, hey, I've just found the savior of the world and he's over here in this location, you you would think there'd be some other response when I said to you, you know, his name is such and such and he he comes from this town, you'd think the response would be something other than, can any good thing come out of that town? So what I think the best treatment of Matthew's claim that he will be called a Nazarene is, is that Nazareth as a city had a specific reputation in the minds and hearts of Israelites in those days. And its reputation was this. It had no reputation. Its reputation was it was so small. It was so backwater, as they say, down in the bayou where my family came from originally. It's so out in the boonies, they say, in other locations, that it had no reputation connected to it whatsoever. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament scriptures in your concordance, you can find reference to a Nazarite, which is a special vow that certain people took to the Lord, but there is no reference to the town of Nazareth or someone who comes from Nazareth being a Nazarene. And so the conclusion is that what Matthew is really referring to is he's going to be a man of no reputation. He's going to, he's not going to be identified with the city of Bethlehem so much. He's not going to be identified with the city of Jerusalem, which at least Jerusalem would be the expected identification with the Messiah because that's where the kings of Israel lived. And Bethlehem at least had some reputation because even though it was a very small town, it was the hometown of King David. But Nazareth has no history connected to it whatsoever. And so I believe what Matthew is doing is, rather than just giving a specific Old Testament reference to a particular prophecy, he's kind of summarizing the story of the Messiah from several different 
Old Testament prophecies, which has to do with he's going to really grow up and develop so far out of public view that when he arrives on the stage of history in terms of beginning his public ministry in the location of Nazareth, it's going to take everybody off guard, and they won't be able to recognize him in that way. All right, so that's the, the longest time we'll spend on any one. Uh, that finishes our segment of the birth prophecies. Let's jump into the ministry prophecies, and I'll try to pick up a little bit of speed as we go. A couple of these I have mentioned before, but I mentioned them with a different focus when we, when we looked at the, the nature of the Messiah. These are all prophecies that, that describe what would happen now, not with Jesus as a child, but what would happen when Jesus was revealed as an adult at 30 years old, and he begins his public ministry. All right, the first one is found, and several of these, by the way, are going to be in the prophecy of Isaiah. We find the most of them in that prophecy, but let's go to Isaiah chapter 40 first. These first three are a set, and they all have to do not specifically with the public ministry of the Lord Jesus directly, but indirectly, they're a critical aspect of the Lord signaling that the Messiah is about to begin his public ministry because these first three all have to do with the ministry of John the Baptist, who we know, of course, arrives on the scene and begins to minister just outside of Jerusalem, and he calls Israel to repentance, and his goal in calling them to repentance is not just calling Israel to repentance like all of the other Old Testament prophets did, but calling them to repentance at a key moment in the Lord's unfolding plan of redemption, and that is just before the Messiah arrives on the scene, knowing that unless they respond with hearts of repentance, their hearts would not be ready to acknowledge, to recognize, and to embrace the Messiah as he came. So Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll start in verse 3 and read through verse 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, so this is a very descriptive prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist and what it would accomplish. It's a preparatory ministry. It's a ministry connected to a greater ministry that's just about to follow it. And the Lord uses, through Isaiah, highly poetic language. Uh, vivid imagery to describe what John the Baptist's impact on Israel is going to be like. And the best way I could describe it using modern terminology, John the Baptist is going to be like a, a unstoppable bulldozer. And he's going to be coming through land that is not ready for the Messiah's arrival. He's going to be encountering mountains. And when the bulldozer encounters those mountains, what is he going to do? What's that bulldozer going to do? It's, going to, it's just going to flatten those mountains. It's going to plow right through the mountains. And where will that, all that extra dirt from the high mountains end up? It'll end up in the valleys because the valleys aren't a fit 
place either for the Messiah's arrival. So the high mountains will be brought down level and the low valleys will be brought up level and everything will end up being level so that it's like a highway prepared for the arrival of the great king. And when everything's ready, then the glory of the Lord in verse 5 will be revealed. And of course, that's exactly what takes place when Jesus arrives on the scene. Following the ministry of John the Baptist, the glory of the Lord was revealed to the people of God. Now, um, in, and I'll just give you, for some of these, I'll just give you a New Testament reference. We won't turn back to the New Testament for each one. Luke chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Luke, in great detail, hits every single point of this ministry that uh, uh, this uh, ministry that Isaiah prophetically describes, the ministry of John the Baptist, and he connects it to John the Baptist, and he makes sure that the people that are reading the Gospel of Luke see that this is all preparatory to the arrival and the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. All right, let's look at another John the Baptist-focused prophecy, and that is in the final of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi. And these last two are both Malachi prophecies, and we studied these in some detail uh, just a few years ago now when we went through the prophecy of Malachi uh, in an expositional study together. So the first one is in Malachi 3. And this is, this is as I said, referencing, referencing the arrival of the Messiah and how the Lord will prepare for his arrival by sending a preparatory messenger. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And as the prophecy continues, all of that is in preparation for an even more significant coming judgment that's going to follow both the preparatory messenger and the arrival of the Messiah. A couple of key points here, of course. One is um, the Lord is identifying John the Baptist as his messenger, one who is preparing the way, but he's preparing the way for whom in verse 1? For me. So the one who's speaking this prophecy by inspiring Malachi, speaking through Malachi, is actually the one who's going to arrive on the scene, but he's not going to arrive on the scene until the, the preparatory messenger first prepares the way for him. So though the children of Israel didn't get this connection and didn't see it, you and I are meant to see it, and that is, this is a hint not just of the arrival of the Lord Jesus following the ministry of John the Baptist. This is another passage that speaks to his nature because it is the Lord himself that's coming. And when he comes, he's going to come unexpectedly and he's going to arrive at the temple, which of course Jesus did arrive at the temple in Jerusalem. And he identifies it as 
whose temple? As his temple, his house, his building. And of course, um, he is also identified in verse one as the messenger of the covenant. Now this is a different messenger. So the messenger at the beginning of verse one, behold, I send my messenger is the preparatory messenger. That's John the Baptist. The second messenger mentioned at the end of the verse is given a different title. He's not a preparatory messenger. He is the fulfillment messenger and he's called the messenger of the covenant. And that's of course, certainly one of the things that was accomplished in the ministry of the Lord Jesus in that he, he, he spoke as the ultimate messenger of God, but his goal was the establishment of a new covenant relationship with the Lord. And of course, that all was ultimately fulfilled in the events of the Last Supper. So for this one, we will connect. There are actually multiple New Testament connections, but we'll connect Matthew chapter 11, verses 10 and 11, in which Jesus uh, links this specific passage from Malachi 3 to John the Baptist as Jesus saw that John the Baptist had fulfilled this description of a preparatory messenger coming before him. All right, and then our last one in Malachi chapter 4. Look at verse 5. This is the uh, final prophecy of Malachi's prophecy, and it's also the final prophecy of all of the Old Testament scriptures. Behold, the Lord speaking, I will send you, he's speaking to the people of God, the people of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, the children of Israel misunderstood this prophecy. And sadly, even to this day, those that have never embraced Jesus as Messiah continue to misunderstand this prophecy and misapply it. If you've... uh, For instance, if you've ever been in a Jewish household for one of the special feast days that they, the the, uh, the Jewish people that attempt to continue to honor what parts of the law that they can honor, they can't honor all because, of course, the temple of God no longer is in existence in the world in a physical sense. But those parts that they can honor, uh, in one of the feast days where everyone gathers around the table for the special feast, they actually set an empty place at the dinner table. And they, they identify it and refer to it as Elijah's place. Now, why would a Jewish family set a place setting at their table for Elijah the prophet? Because of this passage. They're expecting a very direct and literal fulfillment of this prophecy. There is a fulfillment of the prophecy, but not in the way they're anticipating. What they anticipated is the same man that lived in this world in earlier Old Testament history, who was Elijah the prophet. You remember as Elijah's story in this world came to an end, do you remember how his story came to an end? There was was no actual death account of Elijah, and he's one of the only two exceptions of the great characters of the Old Testament where his death is not described. Elijah was caught up in a chariot of fire, a chariot of the Lord, and uh, left human observation. So as far as Israel was concerned, it's entirely possible that Elijah never died. And he's just 
in a sense, being given supernatural extension of life, waiting for the moment when the Lord would, would send him back to fulfill this Malachi prophecy. And so the Israelites, uh, that, that uh, after this prophecy by Malachi, the ones that paid attention to this and, and, and wanted to honor it, anticipated there's going to come a time when Elijah will actually physically return. But let's look at, and we have studied this before, but it's been a long time since we were in this portion. Let's turn now to Matthew 11, where Jesus addresses this issue and shifts the perspective of his disciples from physical fulfillment to spiritual fulfillment. And we're in Matthew 11, verses 13 and 14 now. He's speaking about John the Baptist. We know that because of verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Verse 13 is explanatory. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. In this we understand that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, but in a sense also the first of the New Testament prophets. He's the transition prophet between the covenants. And verse 14 is our key verse. And if you are willing to accept it, which is an interesting way that Jesus describes what he's about to say. He's speaking to his disciples, but he says, if you're willing to accept it, which he understands by even saying it that way, this is going to be difficult for some people to accept. But it's the truth, nevertheless. If you're willing to accept it, he, linking back to John the Baptist in verse 12, he is Elijah who is to come. And then he adds his famous saying in verse 15 just to make sure that they understand that he's referring to something that requires spiritual discernment to draw the connection between the dots. If you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. Now in another passage in one of the other Gospels, uh, the description is that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's how Jesus sees the connection to the Elijah prophecy in Malachi. It's not actually Elijah. John the Baptist is a different human being than Elijah. But he fulfills what Malachi was referring to. When Malachi said by the Spirit of God, Elijah is going to come, I'm going to send Elijah to you before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the Lord had John the Baptist in mind in that prophecy. All right, so let's look at some other ministry prophecies now after our trio of John the Baptist references. The next one is in Isaiah chapter 9. This isn't just a circumstantial detail, but it's an important one because of the Nazareth, uh, excuse me, Nazareth connection. So Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll look at verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land, this is the Lord did, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So this is a reference to the spiritual condition of the region of Galilee at the time of the entry of the Lord Jesus into the world. And how is it described in terms of its spiritual description at that time? It's a land of deep darkness. It's a people who live there who are characterized by walking in darkness. Now, these were people who were, were patriarchal descendants of the, the promises God, the covenant promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are under the covenant promises of the Lord. So why would their land, which is part of the promised land, be called a land of deep darkness? And why would they as a covenant people be characterized as walking in darkness? It's because Galilee by that time in history, the time of the arrival of Jesus, is described here in verse 2, or excuse me, at the very end of verse 1, as Galilee of the nations, and this can also be translated Galilee of the Gentiles. It's because by that time in history, the Roman Empire has conquered that land and settled that land. You remember um, in our study through, through Matthew, there is a reference once or twice, and this is true of the other gospel as well, other gospels as well, to a region known as the Decapolis, which was right near Nazareth and part of the Galilee region. Decapolis was the ten cities. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a translation of Deca, ten, and polis, which is cities. And those cities were all Gentile cities. So in the Galilee region, many, many Gentiles had settled in that area, so much so that the Sea of Galilee, as the Israelites called it, was renamed the Sea of Tiberias by the Romans. There was a heavy Gentile influence, so much so that now the land which should have been a shining light and the people walking in great understanding of the ways of the Lord had been mostly influenced by the darkness that the Gentiles, the spiritual darkness that the Gentiles had brought in. And it's, it's the least um, obvious location that the Messiah would begin his public ministry. What was expected is if the Messiah is going to begin his public ministry, it's, it's got to be in Jerusalem, the bright and shining city that, that is above all other cities on the face of the earth in terms of spiritual elevation. But instead, the Lord chooses the deepest and darkest region of the promised land to plant his son and to begin his public ministry. And in that surrounding circumstance of darkness, he shines this great light, which is revealed through the presence of the ministry of his son. All right, so for this one, um, I won't take us to the New Testament fulfillment, but you can find it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, where Matthew specifically, specifically connects to the Isaiah 9 prophecy. All right, next one, head, let's head back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so this is a, what we can call a law prophecy. And that this is part of the law of God, but it's Moses now speaking 
as a prophet of the Lord about a future generation of Israel. And in verse 15, Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, this is a, 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 an extremely significant prophecy. It's, it's really the most important prophecy that Moses ever uttered, and he uttered many, many important ones. Uh, but this is the most important because it's a, it's a specifically prophetic, uh, messianic prophecy, and one in which the Messiah, a future prophet, who is a prophet for Israel's sake, he's introduced this way. He's going to be a prophet like me. Now, future generations of Israel struggled with that idea because, of course, they had come to almost idolize Moses in future generations, looking at Moses as the shining individual, the great hero of all of the history of Israel, maybe only rivaled by Abraham in their perspective in one sense because Abraham was the beginning of the patriarchal line and maybe only rivaled by King David on the other hand because he was the greatest king of Israel. But Moses stood apart from those two because he was the greatest prophet and the lawgiver, the one through whom God revealed his law to his people. And for Moses to say, there's going to be in a future generation a prophet like me, what does that imply? It implies that God hasn't finished revealing everything he wants his people to know and understand. If Moses is a law giver and that changes Israel's entire relationship to the Lord, then if the Lord raises up a prophet like Moses, that indicates there's going to be in some future, at this point, unknown date, a new law giver that's going to be revealed to Israel. And that's exactly who the Messiah is. So I'll link you to two passages in the New Testament. Uh, One is in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 26, where Peter draws a direct connection between this prophecy of Moses and the Lord Jesus. But then let's look at one that's probably familiar to you, but now with all this explanation might come with new understanding. And this is uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1. And we'll just read verse 17. John writes, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here, clearly, the Apostle John is raising the Lord Jesus to bare minimum the same level as Moses. But actually what he does is he raises him to an even higher level than Moses. And of course, You and I understand that that's the appropriate place for him as great as Moses was and as powerfully as the Lord used him in his revelatory work, um, the Lord revealed something even greater through the Lord Jesus in the same sense that the law of God is great, but the grace of God is even greater and the truth of God is broader and wider and deeper than the law alone. And that was saved and revealed through the Messiah, through the Son of God, through the arrival of the Lord Jesus. All right, let's look at another one. Isaiah 35. This is one of my personal favorites. I mean, all of these should be in all of our favorites lists, but I love this 
uh, particular prophecy in particular because of uh, just the descriptions, the, the way it's revealed. Again, uh, the Lord uses highly poetic language and very vivid imagery without specifically mentioning the Messiah. He describes the impact of what will happen in the world when the Messiah does arrive. We're going, the, whole, the whole chapter you know, uh, is worth reading in that light from that perspective, but I'm, I'm going to highlight two verses, five and six. Then, and the then is, when the Messiah arrives, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That imagery, that last image of streams in the desert, of course, is, uh, uh, was taken by the, the traditional um, daily devotional that's titled Streams in the Desert. So the imagery here is what will, what will we see when the Messiah arrives? And the brief summary is we'll see miracles. We'll see life-transforming miracles and even broader than that, not just him touching a few individuals and their life being transformed by their interaction with him, but world-transforming miracles in that waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams will break forth in the desert. And what happens if you have a wilderness and a desert and it's dry and it's parched and it's mostly lifeless and now streams of water break forth in that wilderness and and by the description here, they break forth and they don't stop breaking forth. They continue to flow once they break forth. What happens to that desert? The desert's transformed. It's no longer a desert. The reason it's a desert is there's no water. There's no life-giving water. Once the water is released, it flows and the desert is transformed and it becomes like what? More like another biblical image that we would describe as the Garden of Eden. And so the Messiah's ministry is going to accomplish that personal life transformation and also in some amazing way world transformation now in terms of new testament connection you can look at matthew chapter 11 verses 2 through 6 this was uh, i'll just instead of turning i'll just briefly describe it because i'm already uh, in danger of not getting to the end of my list here um this is when John the Baptist was struggling after he was arrested by King Herod and placed in prison. And he sent a messenger to Jesus wanting to know, are you really the Messiah? Because while he's struggling in the prison, he's feeling like if Jesus is the Messiah, like I think the Messiah is going to to act, uh, why am I in prison? Because the Messiah is supposed to conquer. And here I am a, a prisoner and I was his messenger. And Jesus sends the messenger back to John and he says, Tell John this. Do you remember what he, he instructed the messenger to tell John about? You're going you're gonna, to tell him that the blind are having their eyes open. The deaf are having their ears open. The mute are able to speak. And miracles are happening. That last part is just my summary. Transforming things are happening by the amazing, miraculous release of God's power. And what he's doing for John is he's giving him an explanation that 
you have a certain expectation of, of the Messiah, but let me direct your attention to what the prophet said would happen when the Messiah would arrive. And it was meant to encourage John's heart that the true Messiah could, could do these things, but no one else possibly could. All right, uh, next. So, so in essence, what we have in that passage is uh, the Messiah's ministry would be a ministry of miracles. Uh, the next is uh, back in Isaiah 40, and I'm not going to turn to it. Uh, we did cover this one last week when we were focused on the character of the Messiah. But here, it's just a, a, a practical description of the nature of the ministry of the Messiah. It's Isaiah 40, verse 11, in which uh, Isaiah says that the Messiah would tend his flock like a shepherd. And just like we did last week, we link that with John chapter 10, verse 11, in which the Lord Jesus identifies himself by one of his messianic titles and identifies to his disciples, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd that was prophetically described in Isaiah's prophecy. Okay, next one. Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2. Let's, let's jump over there real quick. And as fast as I'm going, I'm just not going fast enough. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old meaning not sayings that had to do with darkness, but sayings that were in the dark, meaning not understood by the people of God. I will utter dark sayings from of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And of course, when we get into the ministry of the Lord Jesus, one of the great aspects of his teaching ministry was that he was a, and this wasn't the only way he taught, but was one of the primary ways that he taught. He taught in parables. We see that described for us then in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. The whole chapter of Matthew 13 is a chapter of kingdom, seven key kingdom parables. But in those two verses, 34 and 35, the Lord Jesus describes uh, the reason why he spoke in parables. And then another that has to do with the, the, the parable focus, let's jump over to Isaiah again, chapter 6. I think this will be the last one that I'll do in terms of, of taking us to the passage. After this, I'll just give you the rest of the list quickly. Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. And he said, and this is part of Isaiah's commission as a prophet, but it's going to prophetically apply to the Messiah's commission as a prophet. And he said, go and say to this people, this is the Lord speaking to Isaiah, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's, that's mysterious language and that why would the Lord send someone with a message but he really doesn't want them to understand the message. It's because he's sending them to a people that are under judgment 
And the message is to vindicate the Lord, to vindicate his reputation, to vindicate his name and his purposes, but also hold accountable the people that deserve to be under judgment and will actually be judged by the Lord. And so the, the, the message of the Lord is not going to be an obvious one. It's going to be a hidden one, a dark one, a message that will come in parables. And we'll link this also to the passage in Matthew, this time in Matthew 13, verses 13 through 15, where Jesus does give further explanation as to why he spoke in parables, and that was to hide the full meaning of his teaching from those that deserve to remain under the judgment of the Lord. All right, so we've got one, two, three, four, five, six that are still uh, ahead of us. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you the addresses and I'll give you just a brief line to connect to each one of these. Um, These are all still ministry prophecies of the Messiah. So the next one, Isaiah 8, verse 14, in which the Messiah's ministry and effect upon Israel would be described in imagery as being the Messiah will be like a stone of stumbling for the people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Peter sees that as fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, meaning that there would be some who will never accept him, never embrace him, and actually stumble over him, just like they're walking along and there's a rock that they don't see and recognize, and they hit it and they stumble and fall. Next, uh, Isaiah 11, verse 10. And this has to do with the prophetic description that during the Messiah's arrival and ministry, he would be sought out, not just by the people of Israel that should have recognized him and embraced him, but he'll be sought out by the the peoples of the nations. He'll be sought out by the Gentiles. And we have that special account in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, where at a key moment in the ministry of Jesus He was specifically sought out by the Gentiles and Jesus connected that for the sake of his disciples as the signal that he was about to, the time had arrived for him to go to the cross. Then Isaiah 42, verses one through four, very similar to the one we just looked at, which was that the Messiah would minister to Gentiles. So there's two elements. One, the Gentiles are gonna seek him out And now he is going to actually minister to Gentiles. And Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, saw the Galilee ministry of Jesus fulfilling that prophecy because of all of the Gentiles that lived in that region. So when Jesus ministered in Galilee, he did target the people of Israel, but there were many in the crowds that assembled that were from Gentile backgrounds, and they also received the benefit of his ministry. Then Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Uh, This prophecy says that the Messiah would come to set the captives free and to heal the brokenhearted. And Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, tells us the story uh, one particular account where Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth after having been ministering in other locations. And he wasn't well received there, but Jesus on the day that he was in the synagogue uh, was allowed to speak and he chose to quote this portion of Isaiah's prophecy and applied it to his ministry. But when he did, it enraged the people so much that they, they grabbed hold of him and tried to, you know, they tried to throw him off of a cliff 
and, and I'll leave the rest of the story for your own reading. Um, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we did look at this one uh, in our study of the nature of the Messiah. This simply being a circumstance, though, in this focus, which is the Messiah at some key point would enter into the city of Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. And we see that fulfillment um, in, um, in Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 through 10. And then a final one, Psalm 8, verse 2. The Messiah would be praised by children. In other words, uh, the, the most innocent and unknowledgeable among Israel would find him more easily recognizable than many of the mature and knowledgeable who never really saw him for who he truly was. And Jesus himself links that prophecy to himself and applies it to himself in Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. All right, so thanks for your um, hanging in there. We went a little bit long today, but we did actually make it through our list. For next time, what we'll be looking at is we still have some, some Old Testament messianic prophecies to study, but we'll look specifically at prophecies that have to do with the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God bless you.